Well, who is Wes Johnson? Many of you came here not even knowing the answer to that question. But many of us here on staff, it's like he is the invisible staff member for leading the way or Church of the Apostles. Let me explain. Before you come on staff at either leading the way or Church of the Apostles, you have to have a two-hour conversation with Wes Johnson. And what he's doing is he's seeing if your talents and your gifts match what you are called or being called to do. He has helped us in so many ways, not just in transition consulting, but also just consulting with us when we sometimes lose our way in the process of following the call that the Lord has placed on our lives. Wes is being called now as an actual member of the team, COO at Leading the Way. A little bit more about Wes Johnson. Wes Johnson has been a consultant of Transition Consulting, a firm that helps its clients move people into, out of, and up through their organizations. They are recognized for their expertise and success in helping clients get the right people on the bus. Growing organizations, inspiring change, and developing people are what Wes does best. Dramatic turnaround, growth, and positive change is a consistent result in organizations that Wes influences. A gifted speaker and a proven catalyst, Wes has more than 25 years' experience helping corporations, churches, Christian organizations, businesses, and individuals in times of transition. Wes is summa cum laude graduate of Bryan College and received a master's degree from Memphis Theological Seminary, earning top honors in his class. As an ordained minister in the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination since 1982, Wes has served as a consultant and transition pastor to churches throughout the country. Wes is a former collegiate basketball player and served in the sport for 18 years as NCAA high school referee. Today, Wes remains involved as a game reviewer for six NCAA Division I conferences. We are grateful that Wes has agreed to take the position of COO for leading the way. And I and many of the rest of us are thankful and grateful to call Wes friend. Give a warm apostles welcome to Wes Johnson. As I said to the first service, is it obvious I wrote my own bio? <laughs> this is a surreal moment, and it's an emotional moment for me. Twelve years ago, my wife and I sat up there in that section right there. I'm looking at you, and we're astounded at the remarkable thumbprint that God had placed on this church as a result of the remarkable man who's the leader of this church. It's been my privilege to serve over the last 12 years. I must say, though, that after the service so far, I feel a little bit like the old East Tennessee farmer that my granddad used to talk about a lot that had to be in court one day on an accident case. Uh, when he got to the court, his attorney stopped him before he went in and explained to him what was going to happen, that he was going to go into the court, he was going to be sworn in, and that he was going to be asked to get up on the stand and tell everybody what happened on the day of the accident. Would he be able to do that? He agreed. He went on to tell him that you don't have to be worried or anxious or frightened about anything. Just know that the entire court, the judge, the, uh, the attorneys against us, uh, even the jury, we all just want to see that you get your just results. So after they had sworn him in, the opposing attorney gets up 
and ask him, so will you just tell the honored court what happened the day of the accident? He said, well, it was like this. I was driving down the road one day in my buggy, had my little doggy up by my side, and I was just as happy as I could be when all at once over the hill came this great big automobile, hit the back end of my wagon, broke two of my horse's legs, threw me on, in, over in the ditch on top of my little doggy, and he was just a whimpering in pain. Attorney looks up at him and says, but didn't you tell the officer that day that you were all right? Well, it was a little bit like this. I was walking, I was driving down the road one day in my buggy, had my little doggy up by my side, and I was just as happy as I could be when all at once over the hill came this great big automobile, hit the back end of my wagon, broke two of my horse's legs, threw me over in the ditch on top of my little doggy, and he was just a whimpering in pain. The attorney slaps the podium and says, but didn't you tell the officer at the scene that day you were all right? Looks down at his attorney and says, I told you I ain't got no learning about this sort of thing. If he ain't going to let me tell it like it happened, I'm just going to sit back down there where I belong. Just tell the court what happened that day. He said it was like this. I was driving down the road one day in my buggy, had my little doggy up by my side, and I was just as happy as I could be when all at once over the hill come this great big automobile, hit the back end of my wagon, broke two of my horse's legs, threw me over in the ditch on top of my little doggy, and he was just a whimpering in pain. And a few minutes later, up walks this six-foot-four, 250-pound state trooper, takes one look at my horse with his two broken legs, and he takes out his revolver, and he shoots him. He looks down at my little doggy, just a whimpering in pain, and he shoots him. And then with that smoking pistol in his hand, he looks down at me, and he said, Mister, are you all right? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being candid here. I know I'm not under the gun. I don't know what it's like in Georgia. I know we have a concealed carry law in Texas, so it's not uncommon to have an elder on the front row that's packing heat. But uh, um, no, truly, 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 I am grateful to be here. My brother-in-law challenged me to use the word armadillo in the sermon. But I would never do that, so I'm not going to do that. There you go, Craig. No. I feel like the Apostle Paul of what he said in his first letter to the Corinthians, I come to you in weakness, with fear and trembling, resolved only to know Christ and Him crucified. I am humbled and honored to speak to a church and apostles and about a ministry called Leading the Way that I have admired and served and supported for 12 years. My respect for Dr. Michael Youssef is unimpeachable. The urgency and the energy of a man at his age and stage humbles me. To see him steward well the gift that God's given him, a prophetic and apostolic gift, to be obedient to God's call in his life, and to lean into it, and to approach this last season of his life and want to run into the arms of Jesus rather than to slide for home when he has every opportunity to do that, should be an example to us all. I could not esteem the staffs that had been assembled here at Apostles and at Leading the Way more, not because I had anything to do with it, but I just praise God so many times when I get off the phone of how many people from broken homes and broken lives God captured with His grace, tapped them on the shoulder to full-time Christian ministry, empowered them with the gift and passions to serve perfectly positioned in the roles that they have here. It's remarkable to me. And I love Joshua Youssef. 
Joshua and I have become very, very close friends over the years, over the 12 years that I've served. 17 years. I can't believe it. 17 years. This young man, and he's still a young man, has done a remarkable job of leading that ministry to where it is today. I'll say to you what I said to the Leading the Way staff when I met with them. All you need to know about me is that I am finite, I am fallen, and I am fouled up, and I've been saved by the extravagant grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Like you, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me as he does in you. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My life verse always has been from Philippians. I consider all things, and I mean all things, and can I repeat it one thing? All things as a loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Something else you got to note about me that I discovered early on in my Christian ministry is that I'm wired up a little different. I resonate with Paul when he said in Romans, the 15th chapter, he said, I have always had as my ambition to preach Christ where he is not known so that I would not be building on the foundation of other people. It became very apparent to me in my very first ministry that if I was given the opportunity of going to play basketball at the Bedford Boys Ranch with a bunch of guys that were far from God or eating, uh, uh, I don't know, cookies and drinking sweet tea and reading the Bible on Aunt Betty's porch, that was a no-brainer. I was going balling. That's what I did. I like to be around people that are far from God. That led me ultimately to want to be part of a marketplace ministry. I wanted to be out in the collision of life where I could sow seeds of the light and love of the gospel in people that needed to hear all about it. That's why I love leading the way. That's what they're about. My commitment there, though my role will be changing, my commitment is the same. I told them it's very, very simple. I come to serve the mission, I serve the message, and I serve the messenger. I'm there to steward well the organization that Joshua and others have established and built a great foundation for, and then I'm there to shepherd their remarkably competent and committed staff. And I'm excited for Help the Persecuted, for Joshua and for his team, that portion of leading the way that, in my view, had matured to a point that in its conception and in its commitment, it was ready to be birthed as a crucial kingdom ministry. And I know that God, because I know Joshua and his team, I know that they had the passion and the talent to be perfectly prepared to do what God has called them to do. At leading the way, that gives us the opportunity to refocus, to get back to what the core of what we do is, and that is to preserve that core of a declaration, a proclamation ministry. In the book of John, we're told that if Christ be lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. So we're going to preserve that core of lifting up Christ wherever we go, but then we're going to try to stimulate growth to do that to more people in more places, more creatively and more effectively. When I met with Leading the Way staff the other day, I complimented them on their beautiful feet. Let me look at your feet right now. I know you spent a lot of time in the book of Romans recently, but we're going to read three verses out of the book of Romans for just a minute that kind of uh, draw a bead on what I'm going to be talking about. I majored in Greek and Hebrew. That's not just bragging. That's just I'm good at dead languages. If I actually have to speak the languages, I'm not very good at it. And I looked up the word everyone in the Greek, and you know what it means? Everyone. So, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. 
Paul then kind of devolves into Captain Obvious here. I love the logic that he uses here. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written in the book of Isaiah, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are your feet. I'm going to make no bones about it. I'm on a recruiting mission today. Let's pray. Gracious God, it's never lost on me anytime I speak to an audience that somebody in this room is dying of a broken heart. The darkness that is enshrouding them in their lives seems too heavy and too burdensome for them to bear. I pray, God, that you'll speak into this moment, that you will draw alongside them and that your spirit will bear witness with their spirit that you are sufficient and they would let down the full weight of their life on you. If there's anybody in this audience right now who has a closed mind or a closed heart, who is closing their mind or closing their heart, I pray that you would tap them on the shoulder in a way that my words can't and have them to come home and to come back. But most of all, I pray that you would do high business with our souls, that you would awaken us to the possibility, the purpose, and the promise of an abandoned and obedient life committed to you. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In each of the Gospels and again in the book of Acts, the commission is given. Go ye, go ye into all the world and proclaim the good news. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey whatsoever things I have commanded you. Even as the Father has sent me, so send I you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Lord commands us to do that. It is not an option. It is not a choice. It is not an afterthought. It is an eternal purpose. And the fact that he gives it again and again demonstrates to us how committed he was that all people should know him. And with that command and the evidence that we have in both his expression and his example that he intended for us to carry that into the world, we ought to be doing something about it. It's an interesting thing that right after the commission was given, his very last words to his followers, and he had said to them, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and after that ascended into heaven, that he began to show them this gospel is applicable to the world. One of the first lessons of the book of Acts is the gospel is applicable to the world. They came down from the upper room, those 120 disciples, and as Simon Peter began to preach, all the people there in Jerusalem began saying that we're hearing it in our own language. And God was saying as they responded, the gospel is applicable to the world. In the first three case histories in the book of Acts of an individual being confronted with the gospel of Christ and having their lives transformed by it involved a Jew, a Gentile, and an African. And not only in expression, but also in their own experience, Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit was saying, the gospel is applicable to the world. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
For it is the transforming power of God to rescue anybody, anywhere, anytime. There's no other name under heaven, no other ideology, no other religion whereby we can be saved. And most of the work that I do, about 75% of the consulting work I've done has been out in the business world. So when I'm networking, we're always trying to build a pipeline. So my first question to people I don't know is, what's your business? Immediately followed up with, how's business? So what's our business? Can there be any mistaking the fact that Jesus chose his final words based on the evidence of what he said and based on the actions of the apostles in the first century church? There can be no mistaking the fact that the founder of our religion He himself viewed that the supreme mission is to go and to take the gospel to all the world, to anybody and everybody in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the business of the church. That's the business of this church. That's the business of everybody that's a part of this church. How are we doing? When I uh, was ordained into the ministry in 1982 in my home church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we knew that about that time, about 50%, we were told, of the American population was going to church. Today, we are told that today, literally this day, somewhere between 13 to 17% of the American population will be in a church. I mentored a friend, uh, uh, a gentleman who was asked, I was asked to mentor a, a gentleman who was going to be the first campus pastor of a multi-site uh, video venue uh, megachurch in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It became very apparent early on that he didn't want to do that. He wanted to go plant a church, a world church, a global church. He wanted to go to London and build a church. I said, you're Southern Baptist from Texas. You're going to have to unlearn everything you think you know about evangelism. It won't work over there. And it didn't work over there for two years. He called me one day, Wes, so frustrated. He said, Wes, only 1% to 3% of the population in England goes to church. My wife and I, for our 25th wedding anniversary, took a long trip over England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Our Scottish guide said that some people are estimating that within 50 years, the Church of Scotland won't even exist. The tsunami of secularism that has already swept over Western Europe, guys, has already hit American shores as where. And it's very easy for us in Atlanta or Dallas where we have these remarkably successful evangelical kingdom ministries to get inured to the fact that the winds of culture are no longer blowing in our favor. Now, I'm not worried about it because God, through Jesus, said, this is my church and I will build it. When my own uh, denomination was founded in 1810, it was founded on the frontier in Tennessee and Kentucky. It was part of the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the revival of 1800. Most people don't realize that at that point, only about 10% of the American population was going to church. God's going to take care of it. But what are we going to do about it? Now, understand that I'm not here to admonish you. The last thing that I want to do is lay a guilt trip on you because that's not a good vacation here in the middle of the summer. I understand the reasons why we don't do personally what God has called us to do. I understand the relational demands that God has placed on that, that are just in our lives generally. And to add and layer on more of that is just such a stressor in our life. I realize how we get paralyzed by fear and guilt. I realize that we don't feel competent to confront or to get into spiritual conversations, gospel conversations with other people. I know that many of us have been burned by a bad experience, or maybe you're just like me. You're just an introvert of all introverts. 
I'm an introvert. That doesn't make my wife very happy. I can go an entire day and not talk to another human being, and that is an outstanding day. <laughs> and so the idea of having to make contact with strangers is not kind of on my top ten list. But I want to admonish you in a way that's different. I want to encourage you and to equip you. I read a story some years ago about a Russian rabbi about a hundred years ago, so despondent over the course of his life, so questioning the very calling to ministry that he had, in his despair, in his depression, he just walked out into the night. He was unable to sleep anyway, and he just roamed the empty streets of his city over there, the frigid winter night. Unknowingly, then he walked into uh, a military uh, installation that was off-limit to, to civilians, and suddenly the night quietness was shattered by a, Rome, a Russian soldier brandishing a weapon, pointing it at him and saying, who are you and what are you doing here? Obviously, he was startling. He said, excuse me? The guy locked his gun, leaned forward and said it even louder. Who are you and what are you doing here? The rabbi softened. He didn't want to provoke the soldier in any way. And he said, can I ask you a question? How much do they pay you every day to do your job? What does that have to do with this? Because I'd be willing to pay you an equal sum if every day for the rest of your life and my life, you would ask me those same two questions. Who are you and what are you doing here? Who are you and what on earth are you doing here? Wordsworth said, tell me not in mournful numbers life is but an empty dream. The lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Every single person within sound of my voice, I don't care whether you're six years of age or 96 years of age, if you will let the Lord Jesus do what he wants to do with your life, he can take your everyday, ordinary, commonplace lives and make them extraordinary. When Jesus walked the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he came across those people that he was going to tap on the shoulder to be the founders of his ministry, those people that would partner with him, those disciples that would become the apostles. I don't know that we would have picked any of those guys. But how did he entice them into doing it? He said, I can take your common, everyday, ordinary lives and make them extraordinary. I know you know fishing, but I can make you a fisher of men. I fundamentally believe that the greatest significance as human beings that we can have is discovered and realized in service to others on God's behalf in fulfillment of His great commission work. And how do we experience that? By us abandoning ourselves to God's call to love Him and live for Him in all the already existing roles and relationships of our life, by accepting the challenge of the high adventure of partnering with God in his redemptive work in the world, of representing him with goodness and grace with everybody that we lock eyes with. In 1983, um, 
I finished up my evening, back when we had evening church, I finished up my evening sermon early so that I and a friend could go to Reunion Arena to hear Lionel Richie. Oh, it gets better. Oh, it gets better. The warm-up act was the Pointer Sisters. Sweet, right? Okay, some of you are like, who's the Pointer Sisters? It's whatever, whatever it happens to be. 15,000 people going crazy at this incredible, dancing on the ceiling, just doing all this amazing stuff. Jump, you know, all that great music. The next night, at exactly the same time, three and a half hours north, I was sitting in the Ford Center in Oklahoma City with 15,000 other people worshiping God at the Billy Graham Crusade where I'd gone to participate in the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. I remember very little about the School of Evangelism, but one man, a guy by the name of Milton Cunningham, who challenged us as pastors, and I was 26 years of age, he challenged us to do more to reach our world. And what he told us, the three points, the three principles, the three practices that he mentioned that day have stayed with me ever since, and I share them with you. The first thing he said, if we're going to reach our world for Christ, we've got to rediscover a first-generation faith. To reach our world, we have got to rediscover a first-generation faith that believes God is able. So it realizes that we've been called out, the ecclesia, the called out ones, called out of selfishness and sin and self-directed living, but called into relationship and mission with him. To read the Acts of the Apostles and the rest of the New Testament is to be inspired and, yes, convicted by their radical dependence and by their immediate obedience to these last words of Jesus. They perceived of the church not as an institution, but as a movement. To them, it wasn't a pew and pulpit religion. It wasn't a building that you went to. It wasn't a y'all-come religion. It was go time. They perceived of themselves as a sent-out people into the world that was hungering and thirsting and stumbling for what God and Christ could only give to them. What we're doing today is the church at worship, but they would say that's not really the church. The church isn't fully the church until the church is in witness, in witness to them. The church is best the church, not when we're here, but when we walk out these doors. Theirs was the example of Christ who said he came not to minister, to be ministered unto, but to minister. And the example of the first century church was just that, that they came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Many of them must have been there when Jesus responded to the Pharisees' indictment of him that he was a friend of sinners. And Jesus responded in, in Luke 15 with three different parables. You know what the parables, the parable of the son, the parable of the coins, the parable of the sheep. In those three parables, he continues to hammer home the point that the priority of God, the passion of God, and the pleasure of God is retrieving that which is lost, is helping people find their way ultimately back to him. That's why when Paul wrote to the Corinthians church on the second time, he said in the fifth chapter, we all know, we all know that we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. All the authority of King Jesus has been given to us to represent him in his absence until he returns, and he's given us his ministry of reconciliation, and it's as if God is through us pleading with everybody we lock eyes with to be reconciled to him. Peter then wrote in 2 Peter 2, he said, you're a chosen people, guys. 
You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, now you are. Once you didn't have mercy, now you are. So in front of the pagan world, let your light show shine so that they will glorify your Father which is in heaven. Well, that was them. And that might have been me at 16. But when I heard these words at 26, I already knew that my faith was slipping. And now at 60 years of age, I find it's very difficult to maintain a first-generation faith. As I've aged, I've noticed that the gravitational pull of individuals and organizations is always towards safety and security, towards comfort and convenience, especially in the Western church. The uncomfortable truth is the older a person, church, organization becomes, the more risk-averse, the more comfort-clinging we tend to be, and that creates a spiritual inertia, an ineffectiveness. The way that Cunningham said it, he said, if all you have in your church is second and third generation Christians, they'll kill your church. Unless they've stayed on the cutting edge of spiritual effectiveness, of faithfulness, they will kill your church. William James said, religion is either a dull habit or an acute fever. And when religion becomes a habit, faith dies. And it's characterized by apathy and fear, which one author I read recently called those the spiritual vices of the comfortable churchgoer. If we can look at our world and the people that are going down that street, that are passing by us every day and not care, then our faith is slipping. In contrast, a first-generation faith is a risk-taking, contagious faith, faith compelled by the love of God that pushes past the fear and self-doubt that we all feel to ask God to use us to spread the good news wherever we go. Rediscover a first-generation faith. God, please continue to ignite in me and in each of you to relight that flame, that fire that once burned bright and clear. The second thing he challenged us with that I've always been reminded of, he says, we've got to redefine our world. One of the reasons we don't reach uh, the world for Christ as individuals is because we can't handle the world. When I'm talking about the 193 states in the United States, I can't handle that, and you can't handle that. He says, you've got to focus on Jerusalem. Start in Jerusalem. Start in your existing relationships. Start in those relationships. Just love God and live for him and all the roles and relationships of your life. All the time I'm having people come up, can you help me discover my passion? Can you help me discover my ministry? You don't need a ministry. Your life is a ministry. You only have to love one person. I'm not a lover by nature, but I love this when I heard that I only have to love one person, and that's the person that I'm looking at right now. That's all I got to love. Serve God where you are with what you have. Ask God every morning to help you see people as he sees them. Not as they are, but as they could be with him leading them. See every encounter as an opportunity to share the hope, the love, the faith, and the grace of Jesus. Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest. Look beyond the bravado. I mean, you've got to do that. You've got to look beyond all the bravado and the bombast or the shyness and the insecurity and ask God to draw you to the least, the lost, and the last, and then walk across the room, walk across the street, and just be a friend. 
have that same mind which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, thought equality with God not something to be held on to, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. Can't we do likewise? Yeah, we'll do it imperfectly, I know, and inconsistently, but isn't it better to do something imperfectly than nothing perfectly? Just a couple of quick suggestions, and then we're going to move on. Some things that I've found useful in my life as an introvert that have helped me to reach out to my world that's around me. First of all, I would encourage you to build intentional and authentic relationships of integrity with people that are far from God, with unbelieving people. The core truth here is there is no impact without contact. It's just the way it's going to be. Most people are drawn to Christians before they're drawn to Christ. We know that. And so you've got to lean into that. The problem with most believers is two years after they've come to faith, most churches tell them to cut ties with everybody that they've been running around with, all those unbelievers, because we always assume that they're going to pull you down rather than you pull them up. Be intentional in that you intend to pray for and, and set healthy boundaries with them and then trust that you can challenge them and speak truth to them. Be authentic in the way that you treat them. Treat them not as targets or as projects. See yourself as God's agents of change over a long period of time. Just a genuine friendship without expectation or timetable. We've got to get out there and build friendships with other people that are far from God. So maybe it's one less Bible study to do something that I've always found useful, and that is find something you love to do and just go do it with people that don't go to church. When I got to where I was no good playing ball anymore, I went over to the dark side, as my daughter said, and I put on the stripes and I started to officiate basketball. But more than that, it was a mission field for me. I'd realized that my world was shrinking, and I wanted to expand my world. I wanted God to challenge me to get out of my comfort zone, which, by the way, God doesn't inhabit the comfort zone. God only inhabits the atmosphere of the faith when you're out there beyond your capability to do it. And where if he doesn't show up, it ain't going to happen. So I started officiating because there I could sow seeds of light and love with people that were far from God all the time. Find something you love to do. Join a book club. Take dance lessons. Do a bowling league. Does anybody do bowling leagues anymore? Do they do, still do bowling? Go to the rifle range. I don't know what to do, but whatever. Find something you love to do. Find that commonality and then go do it and build those authentic relationships with other people. Another thing you can do is turn your pain into somebody else's gain. May the God of comfort use you to comfort others with the comfort with which you would comfort. What you were used by, what God uh, grew you through, go and do that for somebody else. Step into the wilderness with them. Between where a person is and where God wants them to be, there's always going to be a wilderness. Between that bondage to what is, between the preferred future that God has for them, there's always a wilderness. I've been spending most of my life over the recent years of my life walking with people in that, but you can do the same thing, just reminding them that God is real and God is relevant and he's ahead of them as a guide and behind them as a guard and you're going to walk with them every step of the way. At some point, at some point, something bad's going to happen in their life. Several years ago, the University of Washington did a study of the most uh, traumatic things that happen in a grown-up's life, and they listed those on a scale of trauma. If you take the top 10 of those, they really come down to the four Ds, death of a close family member, divorce, 
disability, or dismissal from work. At some point, a major taproot in that unbeliever's life is going to be taken out from under them, and their false community is going to walk out, and you're going to stay in, and you're going to love them until they ask you why, and then you're going to tell them. You're going to find out where their life is bad news when they're talking about their frustration, their fear, their failure, or their futility. And I mean, that's just, that's just bait, man. Hope, love, peace, faith. And we speak truth to them in those moments. Have the compassion and the courage enough to share a verbal witness in those times. There will always be those molten moments. And pray God gives you the boldness and the courage to speak to those moments with grace and truth, as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, but because you care too much about them to let them keep going the way that they are. My daughter, our daughter probably got tired of hearing us say this. We love you too much to let you do that. But that's the truth. I would not be standing here if way back in 1970, some young people in a little church smaller than this platform got in front of my face and asked me two questions, though I'd grown up in church that I couldn't answer. If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? Has there ever been a time in your life when you know for sure that you committed your life to Christ? If they hadn't cared enough to confront, I wouldn't be here. God used it to change my world, to change the trajectory of it. Last thing. That he said, he said, you got to rediscover a first generation faith. You got to redefine your world just to focus on your existing web of relationships. And the last thing he said, you have got to become what you want your world to be. If we will not let the Lord Jesus change our life, he will not change our world. We are citizens of an alternative kingdom. We were, we are, and we always will be a countercultural organization. Throughout history, the church has responded to culture differently. There have been periods of time where we've rejected culture. The difficulty with that is we maintained in the integrity of our message, but we didn't have an audience to share it with. There have been other periods of time in our life where maybe we've swung the pendulum too far and we've been too immersed in our culture. We've become so much like them that we have a great audience, but the message doesn't have a differentiator. There's another kind of uh, response that sometimes people have, which is what they call split adaptation, which is when I'm with my unbelieving friends, I'll act like unbeliever. When I'm with my believing friends, I'll act like a believer. But I think we call that hypocrisy. The way that Jesus demonstrated when majesty became meekness, when the divine became human, full of grace and truth, the son of God with power, the son of man without sin is it was this critical participation, this dynamic tension where we're in the world but not of the world. We have got to model a divine difference. Dare to be different. We're supposed to be salt, so we've got to be salty enough to make others thirsty, not enough to make them gag, but you know what I'm saying there. We make Christ irresistible when we model a divine distinctiveness, a compelling contrast, a better way, a narrow way that leads to life. Finally, I leave you with a story, one of my favorite stories of all time. Near a small village on a rocky bay, 
on the island of Crete sits a Greek Orthodox monastery, and alongside it, on land donated by the monastery, is an institute dedicated to human understanding and peace, and especially of the reconciliation of the peoples of Germany and the peoples of the island of Greek. It's an improbable task if you understand the history of World War II. The site of the institute is significant because it overlooks a small airstrip where Nazi paratroopers invaded Crete and were attacked then by peasants wielding kitchen knives and hay cutters. The retribution for their resistance was terrible. The Nazis lined up whole populations of entire villages and executed them on the spot. High above the institute is a cemetery with a single cross marking the mass grave of the partisans that died that day. And across the bay on yet another hill is a regimented burial ground of the Nazi paratroopers that died. Both memorials are placed where they are so the people there will never forget and would always see. Hate, I am told, was the only weapon that the people of the island of Crete had at the end of World War II, and it was a weapon they said they would never let go of. So it's against this heavy curtain of history that the very existence of an institute dedicated to healing the wounds of war seems to be a pretty fragile paradox. So how in the world did it come to be? A man. A man by the name of Dr. Alexander Papadaris, a doctor of philosophy, a teacher, a politician, a resident of Athens, but a son of the soil of Crete. At war's end, he came to believe that the Germans and the Cretan people had much to give one another, much to learn from one another, that they had an example to set, that if they could learn to forgive each other and construct a creative relationship, then maybe anybody could do that. Well, to make a long and wonderful story short, he succeeded. The Institute became a reality, a conference ground on the side of horror. And it has, in fact, been a source of productive interaction between Germany and the Isle of Crete for many, many years. Several years ago, the best-selling American author, Robert Fulgham, had the privilege to, to participate in the Institute one summer. When he wrote about this in one of his best-selling books, he said that by the time he got over there, Dr. Papaderos was kind of a living legend, but he said uh, to meet the man and to see him in person and to see his presence in a room exceeded his reputation and even his expectation. It was a rare sight indeed. During, he said, the last session of the last morning, Papaderos, who had been sitting in the back, walked to the front of the room into the Greek sunlight of an open window, stared out for the longest period of time, turned back to the class and said, do you have any questions? Silence filled the room. No questions, he asked again, looking more individually at people. Finally, Dr. Fulgham raised his hands, and he said, Dr. Papaderos, what is the meaning of life? People just laughed. They figured he was joking. They started gathering their things to get ready to leave. But Dr. Papadiris raised his hand and stilled the room, and he looked at Fulgham, and he said, I'll answer your question. He reached in his pocket for the longest time, fished around, and then he finally brought out a little mirror, this little mirror type of a mirror like we have here. 
a small mirror about the size of a quarter, and then he began to speak. He said, when I was a child, we lived in a very remote village, and we were very, very poor. And one day on a road, I found the broken pieces of a mirror from a German motorcycle that had been wrecked in that place. I tried to find all the pieces and put them back together, but I could only find the largest piece, this piece, so I kept it, and I found that by rubbing it against a stone, I could make it round. He said, then I began to play with it as a toy, fascinated by the fact that I could, could, could reflect light into the dark places where the sun would never shine, in dark crevices, in deep holes, in dark closets. It became kind of a game for me to get light into the most inaccessible places I could find. And he said, I kept the mirror. And as I went about my growing up, from time to time in idle moments, I would take it out and continue the challenge of the game, and then I grew to be a man. And I began to understand that this was not just a child's game, but a metaphor for what I might do with my life. He said, I came to understand that I'm not the light. I'm not the source of the light. But the light of God's truth and love and grace and hope is real. And that maybe I could shine that into the dark places if I reflect it. So you see, Dr. Fulgham, I am the fragment of a mirror whose whole shape and design I do not know. But with what I have, I do. And I shine the light of God's truth into the darkness of men's hearts in the hope that through the power of his Holy Spirit, I might do some good in someone's life. That, Mr. Fulgham, is the meaning of my life. So we're back to the question, who are you and why are you here? Be reminded that God can take your ordinary, everyday, commonplace life. I don't care what age and stage you are and make it extraordinary. I'm spending a little more time on this than I did in the first sermon. I know I'm spending more time, but hey, I haven't talked in two years, so I've kind of got a lot going on here. I've talked, but not, not, you know. If you're under the age of 35, you're trying to sort out your life. You've got a lot of major decisions in your life. Who's going to be your master? What are you going to tie your happiness and your fulfillment to? A person, a career? I don't know. What's going to be your master? Who's going to be my mate? Am I going to get married or am I going to align myself with other groups of friends? Who am I going to hang with? Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. You become like who you hang around with all the time. You're trying to decide your mate. But sooner or later, you're going to want to know a mission. One of the most compelling aspects of the Christian gospel to a world that doesn't necessarily take the authority of Scripture is real is that more and more young people are discovering that as they try to live out their own truth, it doesn't satisfy. I consult with a startup Christian ministry in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I had conversations as they were hiring people with three men, a South African a guy from northern Italy and a guy from Finland, all of them had risen up through the ranks. They wanted to be a gamer. They wanted to go do gaming and, and, pro, and, and program games. And they got to the, what they identified as the top IT companies in their particular part of the world. And at 20 
8 to 30 years of age, they said, is this all there is? If you want something that will infuse your life with meaning for the rest of your life, if you're under 35 years of age, you need to sign up for the Church of Jesus Christ. No adventure like it. If you're 35 to 55, sooner or later, you're going to realize that you might have leaned the ladder of your life against the wrong wall. You've been spending all your time trying to climb the ladder of success only to get to the top of it and realize that there's nothing there. And you want your life now to go from success to significance, that midlife crisis. Don't know exactly when that happens, but at some point, we realize that there's more. That's the perfect pivot point. You're in the prime time of life. God can take you wherever you are. Because it's amazing how it does. You know, I don't know if you know this. Amazon should be envious of the church. It's a curious thing that God said through Jesus in the upper room. I'm going to give my spirit to each of you. And then you're going to do greater things than me. How can we work and we do greater things than you? Because I'm going to scatter you like seeds in banks and in ballparks and in construction sites and the schools. And you're going to take me wherever you go. The church is the fulfillment center for the gospel, for the world. And we're on every corner. It's pretty awesome. I'm sorry, I digress. 35 to 55, that's your fulfillment center. But I really want to talk to those of you who are older. 60, 55, 60. I turned 60. Wow, that just seemed hard for me to say. I turned 60 last September. When the calendar years flipped over, I had had this gnawing dissatisfaction. I was tired of helping companies make more money. I wanted to take this last gust of my life and do something more kingdom-oriented, but I knew that was going to have an impact financially because churches don't, I don't know if you know, churches don't pay with corporations, but. And so I started praying every day in January, every day in January, God, what is the best use of my life? Show me the best use of my life. I'm tired of being a reservoir. I want to be a river. I want to give out to the next generation. I want to go lead something that will have a legacy. One of the last days of January, on my cell phone, pops up Dr. Youssef. We haven't talked that much over the years. And he says, Wes, I know you're a processor. Don't tell me anything now. But you know what's going on. You've been part of this conversation. We're going to be spinning off, help the persecuted. Josh is going to be taking a team and can do that. Can you come and help us in Atlanta? Will you come be the chief operating officer? No. I got six grandkids here. I commute from my coffee pot to my front office. Atlanta traffic, seriously? But I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let it go. Four weeks later, and if you know, you know Dr. Youssef, this is a powerful personality. He is a ready, fire, aim. Dr. Youssef, we've talked this. It's, we're good. I had put other candidates in front of him. I had told him every reason why I couldn't do it. I have no knowledge in network and media. I haven't led anything in 20 years. I got grandkids here. Why me? I shared with him a guy that had incredible capability, but 
to his credit, he said, the trouble with, with that gentleman is he's too much like me. And, and, and because he's so much like me, one of us isn't necessary. If there's anything I've learned is I need people around me that are polar opposites of me that slow me down. And you slow me down. Seriously? You just said I slow you down. He said, well, it's been, it's been four weeks for God's sake. But he wouldn't let me go. And I'm not talking about Dr. Youssef. I'm talking about God. On the day that Nancy and I had committed to Dr. Youssef that we would give him an answer, I looked at Nancy. She was sitting in her chair. And I said, don't tell me what you feel. Don't tell me what you want. Tell me what you believe is right and best. The world tells you just to do what you want and what you feel. And we get to a certain age and stage, and we think we've earned the right to do what we want and do what we feel. If you're not dead, you're not done. There is no retirement in the Christian faith. And I can tell you honestly, I don't feel like being here. Well, I do a little bit. You're warming up on me. But the truth of it is, it's right and it's best. Some of you should think about yourself at this age and stage of your life. This church and the people that you're in contact with, they need you to be God's messenger to those place. Take that little mirror and make your feet beautiful. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the patience and for the generosity of Dr. Youssef to share this pulpit with me, to give me the opportunity to speak from my heart about everything that you've designed and desired me to do. God, I want to be about the business of telling everybody and I come into contact with that you are real, that you are relevant, and that the best life they could ever want happens now, that you're the only way to live and the best way to die. Help us to take seriously the call that you placed on each of our lives to live with abandon and obedience, not comfort and security, and to push past our fear and our self-doubt and to just go build authentic relationships of integrity with people that need you. Give us eyes to see the harvest and send us out in Jesus' name. Amen.